establishing connection to science night. Please stand by. special episode of the Science Night Podcast. It is May 4th, and what are we going to talk about? Of course, we're going to talk about Star Wars. But let me introduce this little panel I have assembled for you today. You're never going to guess who it is. Starting up, we have Steffi. Hey. And Jason. What's up? Yeah, you never saw Steffi and Jason on the docket coming in this special episode, but we do have a special guest, friend of the show, Bill Sullivan, who will be talking about everyone in Star Wars' favorite topic, midi-chlorians, later in this episode. But first, we have some special presentations to talk to you today about the science of Star Wars. What is it? Your father's lightsaber. This is the weapon of a Jedi Knight. Not as clumsy or random as a blaster. An elegant weapon for a more civilized age. Steffi, you are a known lover of sci-fi. And you're also a known lover of plasma and lasers and real hot things that are colorful. So, why don't you... Use your interests and knowledge and expertise to tell us about the plasma of the Star Wars universe. It's pretty much my favorite part of Star Wars. I mean, I'm just obsessed with plasma. Let's be honest here. Okay, so I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna start off with lightsabers, and then we're gonna go to blasters too. So before we jump into that. Lightsabers are a very niche topic. I don't know if the average Star Wars fan is going to know what a lightsaber oh. is. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. We need to define it first. <laughs> <laughs> Something in there about a kyber crystal, I'm going to guess, right? There is going to be a kyber crystal. So basically, I'm taking the shorthand definition, a plasma blade powered by a kyber crystal. Sometimes it's called a lightsaber crystal. You'll probably remember these. They're very iconic. You have a handle, tap it usually, and then a blade extends. And it's glowing. It's pretty much amazing. It's like a plasma switchblade. Yeah, plasma switchblade, but way larger. Um, You can cut things like arms off, hands, blaster doors. You can go through stormtroopers. Pretty useful. All the things you need to do. All the things one needs. (laughs) Exactly. Now, forgive me if you're going to cover this in your talk, but I want to know where you stand in the iconic scene from episode four, A New Hope, where Obi-Wan cuts off one's arm with a lightsaber and then it's still bleeding afterwards. Now, I always thought that that would be a cauterized wound and there shouldn't be a blood pool, but I don't know. Maybe I'm missing something. I mean, they do use plasma in medical. You can use it to cauterize wounds because you can disinfect really well. It may be due to the speed. If you don't have it in contact with the wound long enough, it may still be bleeding out. Plus, it's like a massive arm. Like, there's a lot going on there. 
Yeah, but there's only one major conduit for blood, let's be honest, right? And if you cauterize that, you should be good to go. I mean, there's a couple of smaller tributaries, but it's one major artery running through there. And how much is how what's the temperature of plasma again? I, I it's like twenty five degrees Celsius, yeah, it's right? Just, yeah, room temperature. No, so a plasma, if you don't know what a plasma is, so if you heat up a gas, there's three you know, start with solid, heat add heat, you get a liquid, add heat, gas, add even more heat, lots and lots of heat, so much heat that you strip the electrons from the nuclei. Then you essentially get a soup of electrically charged particles, and that's what we call the plasma. Temperatures to reach the plasma state, we're talking around two to 3,000 degrees Kelvin, which is three to 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit, because we're used to seeing in Star Wars cutting metal, right? Cutting stainless steel. Uh, the melting point of stainless steel is 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit. So totally plausible, that scene in Phantom Menace, where that's happening. Yeah. I mean, could we yeah. even get... Can we even get a lightsaber close enough to a person without just melting them? I mean, there's a buffer of air. Essentially, what you're going to have, we see them kind of in real life. The closest thing we have is a plasma torch. Those can get really, really hot, too, tens of thousands of degrees. They have a, basically a, a layer of air to kind of shield people around that. Um, one thing, so you mentioned, can a human get close enough without getting hot? I think so if you have a shield around it. But really, they don't wear any PPE protective wear. Mm -hmm. So if you have a blade made out of plasma, it's giving off a lot of UV light. Fries your eyes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So so Space OSHA has really got to get down on these Jedi. Space OSHA has to step it up. The stormtroopers, they're okay, though. Sure. Sure. They have protective gear, but... Maybe it was in response to the threat of, of the <laughs> Jedi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, okay, I mentioned a plasma torch. There's actually, and we can post a link to it, someone actually made a retractable lightsaber blade. It's pretty amazing. What? Yeah, okay, so normally the way you make a plasma like a blade shape would be what we do. We use magnets to confine it so it adheres to a shape. Another way you can do is kind of like a plasma torch, but you have essentially a laminar flow nozzle. Um, it's a nozzle that concentrates the fuel or the flow of gas. That's what you're using to fuel this lightsaber. So the particles flow in straight, smooth paths and layers. You can get the super concentrated fuel and you just kind of ignite it and you can change the flow of the gas to actually extend a blade it's pretty fantastic and then we all know that lightsabers are different colors right based on what si yeah. side you're on so you can change the fuel that's kind of what i see in my basement at work. Um, okay. <laughs> just about basement. I'm glad <laughs> yeah. you clarified that. So we run in, we run in deuterium gas, gas. So that makes nice pink lightsaber colors. And the way you can actually see that color is that those electrically charged particles actually recombine and give a photon in that wavelength, pink. But you can add things like salts or different gases to change the color of the lightsaber blade. So similar to like fireworks, right? Where yes. you add different different minerals that combust in different colors. Yeah. That burn in different colors. Ex I don't know why I said combust like I was trying to impress somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is combustion though. So yeah, you can do that. We actually look for different colors to see if we have 
garbage in our machine, like mm, different oh, that's junk. Interesting. Yeah, the way we start up our plasmas is with it looks like a lightsaber. I can send you a picture. It's amazing. Yeah. I'll it, put it on the website. Yeah. We have people are going to want to know. Yeah. So the way we start up our plasmas is we actually have these injectors. We call them. You can plug them in the side of the machine, and it looks like the handle of a lightsaber. And then you extract a beam of plasma from it. What? Yeah. Um, That's cool. It's amazing. But this kind of goes back to how does this work and function in reality, right? So uh, the power supply for our lightsabers or injectors is 16 megawatts. If you're going to compare it to like our power plants right now, that's enough power consumed by 10,000 homes. <laughs> so you're not Whoa. you're not carrying that around with you, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Just strapped to your belt. <laughs> exactly. In a handle that, let's be honest, it can't be made of steel because it would melt, right? So, like, what is the handle made out of? Oh, it is like we have stainless steel, molybdenum, and boron nitride. So okay, okay. but yeah. the, so we're talking yeah. about your igniter, not a lightsaber itself, yeah? Yeah. And then ours is two, twenty thousand degrees. Fahrenheit. That would cut right through a stormtrooper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine yeah. that that's at the point where, like, you're above the melting point of one's hand, for example. Yeah. Yes. We also uh, run ours in vacuum, which is a little bit easier to make a plasma in vacuum. You know, there's always been, like, this talk about what is a lightsaber, and for a long time, people just kind of assumed it was a laser, because that was all we could wrap our heads around it being. Having it be a plasma makes so much more sense because it's like a finite end rather than a laser that would just kind of go on and not really produce a beam unless you're putting something through it, right? Yeah. So I mentioned that nozzle method. Um, That allows you to actually make the blade a finite length. The length, what sets our blade a certain length is you have to apply a a voltage to another point. So it, it has to find ground to somewhere. And so that's another tricky part. You either have to apply a voltage to somewhere or have a magnetic field around it. So I think if you're going to have highly concentrated gas, that's the way to do it. This really has me thinking of, of the the infamous Kylo Ren lightsaber that kind of looks like it's broken and it's pulsing. Yes. Uh, you know, it's, it's losing its confinement. This all makes so much sense. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Pokey religions and ancient weapons are no match for a good blaster at your side, kid. Should we go on to blasters now? Oh, we absolutely Okay. Should. So Han Solo has a blaster. People have said it. maybe it's a laser, right? I'm going to say, nope, definitely a plasma. Because you can actually see it with your eyes. Okay. So lasers, if you're just in regular space, you can't actually see the, the beam. There's different kinds of plasmas we've talked about. This one, it looks more like what's called a plasmoid, which is a little blob of plasma. And it has an associated magnetic field with it. And so if you have a current flowing in a plasma, it's going to make its own magnetic field. You see them a couple of different places, these plasmoids, in the magnetosphere, which surrounds the Earth. These plasmoids that are in the magnetosphere, they're formed via what's called magnetic reconnection. So essentially you're breaking and reconnecting magnetic field lines. And this happens when plasmas in the magnetosphere are kind of forced together. And when that happens, it causes charged particles to accelerate. And they go in the top of our atmosphere, probably see them, called the auroras. 
But it also ejects material away from the Earth as a plasmoid, this little ball of plasma. It's very tricky to make these on Earth because if you make a plasma in air, it just dissipates, it cools down, it turns into neutral gas. So this is where it gets a little bit tricky. I can tell you maybe what it is, but I'm still, there's still this thing where plasmas work best in vacuum. Got to keep them hot. So in tokamaks, the magnetic confinement looks like a donut. You can actually see plasmoids in the edge of our confined plasma. They look like little eddies of plasma blobs. Um, They happen in the edge due to like turbulent transport, kind of eddies and flows. Um, And then they puff out and dissipate in the plasma or in the rest of the machine. Um, There's also something called a spheromac. There's a lot of different ways, shapes you can confine plasma. So a spheromac looks like a plasmoid, little tiny donuts. You drive a current in it to set up its own magnetic field. They actually, you can make them with rail guns. It's like a plasma rail gun to make them. Wait, are are they are rail guns a real thing? Like little. Am I finding? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> you can use a magnet. It's like a plasma rail gun. You can use a magnet to induce currents in these little plasmas and accelerate it up to 200, 200 kilometers per second. Okay. It's faster than a bullet. So you can imagine if you have these little accelerating plasma balls, you can throw them, and then they could potentially heat up the target, cause damage that way. Or plasmas have electromagnetic fields associated. They could create an electromagnetic radiation pulse that can disrupt or damage electronics. Still, these are made in vacuum. So we gotta we got to figure that part out. How do you how how can you sustain these in in real life in our, our atmosphere? And again, I feel like we cannot say this too few times. What is the amount of energy you would need to put in to start this reaction into your blaster? Oh yeah, this is a lot. We need these magic tiny nano batteries to happen. I mean, like I said, ours is like a power plant. You need to make it happen. And then we don't need to get to the issue of like. How can one miss so badly with those blasters like a stormtrooper does? And yeah. others, like Han Solo, for example, be deadly you know, with the shot. It's crazy. He has a little scope on the top of his blaster. I've never seen him use it, but it is there. It probably ups the stat. So he's also a space cowboy, right? I mean, yeah. being a space cowboy means he's going to be a little more accurate probably with his blaster. But still that blaster's handheld. There's no power for either all of these all of the above handheld. Yeah, but you're forgetting about the force. Yeah, that's true. I didn't add that into my calculations. So, for next year, <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't control for the force? No, next year we'll be back and I'll control for the force. <laughs> okay, so let's talk for a second Steffi then about, you know, we're talking about handheld blasters, but we still have blasters on spaceships too, right? Yep. And those actually would be fired into a vacuum. Yeah. Is that maybe more realistic? And how come we can hear the sounds? Actually, okay, I will tell you how you can hear the sounds. Nice. Okay. This is why we brought you onto this podcast. Give it to us, <laughs> Steffi. Okay. So I told you a plasma is electrically charged fluid. Fluids have flow. We have little tiny coils of wire that measure the magnetic fluctuations from the flow of these turbulent features in the plasma. So you could set that up 
And then you could get the frequency of those oscillations and then turn it into audio. Oh, right. So we have a speaker system that creates pew, pew. Exactly. Exactly. What frequency does pew register? I don't know. I mean, well, again, next year. We got. We yeah. can't give all the content away this year. I'm writing down a list. Yeah. Right. And then you got to look at like the cycling, right? The periodicity here, because we're not talking about one pew. We're talking about a pew, pew. And so. Exactly. Figure out. <laughs> exactly. I mean. Based on what we talked about last episode with the uh, with all the JPL and NASA funding just to send a message into space, I feel like this this is an NSF grant that's just waiting to be awarded to somebody. So okay, so Steffi, uh, you can we can do our first Science Night grant. Yes, <laughs> I'm gonna look it up, and uh, and I, I would happily sweep the floors in the lab uh, to to contribute. <laughs> Look at him, he's heading for that small moon. I think I can get him before he gets there. He's almost in range. That's no moon. It's a space station. It's too big to be a space station. Very bad feeling about this. Jason mentioned destroyers. So we're going to go to the biggest destroyer now, the Death Star. The moon-sized planet destroyer. So I kind of started looking this up because I was wondering how much metal we had in the universe. It was if it was even possible to build a Death Star. And then I came across this great article that we can put in the show notes because apparently in 2012, more than 25,000 people signed a petition asking the U.S. government to construct its own Death Star. Famously, this is when everyone found out that We the People website existed (laughs) and that you could submit anything. Yeah, but I loved it. So this is great. So I'll get some highlights from that. Um, So when a petition reaches that many people, they, they have to write a response. So their response was they basically rejected the petition due to two things. Cost. And I'll get into like a cost estimate in a little bit. But the second item was the fact that a single small craft, small spacecraft was enough to destroy it. I feel like maybe we wouldn't have saboteurs on the design team like like we found out in Rogue One happened with the Death Star. Maybe we've got to get more operational security in the design phase and uh, we won't have the trench run be a thing. Yes, you're saying all of Earth can we unite around one thing, and that is creating a Death Star. Hey, I mean, that seems so on brand for Earth. (laughs) Right. It seems like we've been metaphorically doing that already. (laughs) No. So it turns out the biggest obstacle wasn't the cost or, you know, the design flaw, but physics, of course. As it usually is. Exactly. Physics always gets in the way. See, that's the difference. In that galaxy, they don't have physics. They have the force. And it's always with them. Right. But not with them, not with Earth, unfortunately. I'm just going to highlight a couple things that make it physically impossible. So they estimate that it would take 830,000 years of Earth's current steel output to create enough metal for just the hull of the structure. That's that's a lot. Yeah. It is. You could win on this in the Rust Belt, though. <laughs> Creating that much steel would end the Earth. Yeah. At least would end, as we talked about before, would end humanity on Earth. So we're going to need to yeah. find another species to take up 
take up the task afterward. Yeah, see, that's the problem they don't have in the Star Wars universe too. They got all they got so many planets. Yeah, chock a block full of planets. They don't you don't ha- you don't know of a planet that has the exact thing that you need in Star Wars universe. It's there in the next movie. You just gotta find it. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, and to build on what Jason just said, even just the rocket launches to send the building materials to space would pollute the atmosphere to the point of Earth being uninhabitable. So I guess we need green energy for our rocket launches now to save that. <laughs> what you're saying is the real Death Star is man. Yes. <gasps> yes. Yes. And the Death yeah. Star will destroy the will destroy the Earth. Mm-hmm. Yep. It'll just look way less cool. Right. It will on the screen. Less less lasers. Right. So let's be honest, even the Death Star isn't shooting out a laser. Because you could see it with your eyes, right? So it must also be a plasma yeah. by your criteria. Yeah, and even if it was a laser, you'd need a huge power source on the Death Star. And I feel like it would destroy the Death Star. <laughs> well, I mean, that is what the Death Star is most known for. Right? That's right. I was uh, going to yeah. say, that's the plot of more than one movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think technically three movies if you count the Starkiller base from, from The Force Awakens. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and then cost $850 quadrillion, quadrillion dollars according to the White House. So I, I like how they factored the cost. Did they? I, I want to see, see the sheet on that. I need to see the actual <laughs> sheet. Yeah. I just want to know how the uh, supply chain disruption is going to affect this and also how inflation is going to affect those numbers. Mm, that's true. I mean, I think it might cause us to be more creative and innovative and find better materials. So you're saying we should try it. <laughs> it's driving innovation. Necessity. It's necessity. <laughs> it's the mother of right? all invention, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, and then, okay, another point. It's so massive, so 100 miles in diameter. How massive not, is it? <laughs> it's not able to survive long in low Earth orbit. It would just fall out of orbit and crash into the surface. Would it have to be created further than the distance of the moon to Earth? Yeah, and, the, and then you would have to put some kind of propulsion to keep it in orbit. Otherwise, it just kind of gravity takes over and does its thing. We can talk about how how it would be difficult building it because our atmosphere and magnetosphere protect us from ionizing radiation. And so if you have people in space building the Death Star, they're just going to get radiated. Yeah. They'd have to shield the worksite. And we already know that in the Star Wars universe, OSHA is not a thing. Yeah. Do you understand anything they're saying? Oh, yes, Master Luke. Remember that I am fluent in over six million forms of... What are you telling them? So what I want to talk about is the language of Star Wars, because there is some. They talk in all of these movies. They're all talkies. Not a single silent film among them. And on this podcast, we have talked about constructed languages or conlangs before. And if you don't believe me, go and listen to my conversation with David J. Peterson. And, you know, that also works if you want a bit of a refresher. But basically, a conlang or a constructed language are fictional languages that have very real linguistic rules. Because, you know, what everyone loves is a linguistic rule that you can follow. Now, in the Star Wars universe, 
Ben Burt was given the task of creating the languages of the original trilogy. However, he really just created sounds in the backgrounds that non-human species would be making so that they sounded different. He didn't put a ton of thought into these languages. The thing you have to remember when we talk about the languages of Star Wars is that the Star Wars universe, specifically the first three films, work on something called mutually passive bilingualism, which is their way of saying that characters can talk to each other in different languages and they're just going to understand each other without the addition of other tech. So technically they have like protocol droids like C-3PO, although he never actually ever translates for anybody. He's just speaking in English. That's something you really got to keep in mind when we think about the depth of time they put into thinking through this world. Some of the examples are Hutties, or the language of Jabba and his and his crew. He did actually pull sounds from existing languages because he was talking to camera in those scenes. So he used some of the phonemes or sounds of a Tibetan language and Quechua. And this was seen as a major kind of oversight because he didn't ask the people that use these languages a lot if we could like, hey, why don't you get involved with that? He's like, oh, no, that sounds cool. Let's throw this into the movie. And then another example of this is binary. That's the language of the droids that don't have the cool voice modulator. So like your R2's D2 and your your BB's 8. Uh, they all speak in droid binary, and this is just a bunch of beeps and boops. He did not put a lot of thought into that. They were just the beeps and boops that he could put his microphone in front of without getting a lot of audio feedback. So I'm kind of like building this picture of languages not really having a lot of thought put behind it. But there are instances in which language was used in Star Wars to actually like convey something. So let's talk about those instances rather than just the like random sounds that that George Lucas and the and the team thought were interesting. So the thing that you hear almost all the time in Star Wars is basic or republic basic or galactic basic. It depends on what uh which trilogy you're, you're listening to. But basic is just English. It is it is the Queen's English depending on where you're from. However, they did use this as an opportunity to have another anthropological concept called a center and periphery. So they used different dialects or, you know, just the actual the actual vernacular or accent that the actors themselves had to tell you where the people were from. There is an outer rim dialect, which is just... American English, and those are what the rebels tend to speak in. And then there's the core dialect, or the imperial dialect, or the Republic Senate dialect, which is just good old received pronunciation English, British English, which is everyone's favorite version of British English, which you'd hear on the BBC, so that you know they're very official and very imperial. There are a couple notable exceptions, but I think it kind of reinforces it. You have Obi-Wan Kenobi, played by Sir Alec Guinness, who is very British. 
and then also by Ewan McGregor, who was not allowed to use his natural Scottish accent. He had to put on the British properness. And the way they kind of explain this is not just like, hey, we, we could we could get Alec Guinness. Of course we're going to go for that. They're like, no, 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 no. Obi-Wan did not remember his time living on his homeworld, which was in the Outer Rim. He was raised in Coruscant in the Jedi Temple, so that's why he speaks in that way. And then they also have the opportunity to have some like code switching with both Princess Leia and Queen Amidala or Padme Amidala, otherwise known as like major characters in these movies. If you haven't heard of these people, what are you doing here? Go watch Star Wars. <laughs> um, but you can hear them become more and less British depending on who they're talking to and what's happening around them. If they're in a blaster fight in some kind of rebel battle, they're very American all of a sudden. The, the trouble is that people don't always agree. Well, then they should be made to. By whom? Who's going to make them? I don't know. Someone. You? Of course not. But if they're talking in front of the Galactic Republic, or if Carrie Fisher is cursing out her father in the Death Star, she seems a little more British. You'll not be so pleased when you hear what I have to say, Viceroy. I have heard that the Chancellor's ambassadors are with you now. And that you have been commanded. They kind of worked that into it, so that was all on purpose. I didn't even catch that. When watching it. I just thought that was what the actor sounded like. But, like, George Lucas put a little bit of thought behind it. So that was interesting. If you've heard Galactic Basic, which you have, you've also seen Arbesh, which is the Galactic Basic alphabet, which has appeared in every Star Wars thing since Return of the Jedi. Basically, George Lucas didn't want to have... Uh, the Latin alphabet appear anywhere. So in the first two movies, uh, or episodes four and five, if you're using Star Wars math, you don't see writing a lot. It's just not there. Everything's pictograms. So you'll just see the the picture on the screen, or you'll see a drawing of something. But in Return of the Jedi, they wanted to have the plans of the Death Star look more plan-like, so they created this very crude writing system that doesn't actually follow what you would see in things after 1993 because in 1993 uh, at the direction of LucasArts, Stephen Crane of West End Games created the full 34 character writing system for the Star Wars role playing game and then he expanded that to include special symbols and other characters in 1996 expansion of the Star Wars role-playing game. And this has been what you've seen on the screen ever since. Why 34 characters? So they just wanted to be a one-to-one representation for Latin, but with a couple special characters that have, like, ligatures between the two. So they wanted to include a couple of those, just for flavor. What's a ligature? That's when you have two words that you'd write next to each other, but then over time they just connect. And the most kind of prominent one I can think of is the ampersand, like the, it's it's above the seven on your keyboard. What did that look like to start out with? It's E-T. It's for the Latin et, which is and in Latin. But over time, and I'm assuming probably due to a writing error somewhere, because that's how a lot of these happen, it got connected. So the E and the T became one character, and that's been the kind of system ever since. So that's a version of a ligature. 
So wait, how many languages does this bring us to? So this is just a writing system. We technically have one language with a writing system. Because uh, a language is really just the words, but then a writing system's a little bit different, right? So we use the Latin alphabet for English, but a lot of different languages use the Latin alphabet. It's not really a language on itself. We have Galactic Basic and Arbesh. Arbesh is the writing system. But because Arbesh, they've created it to be a one-to-one translation between the Latin alphabet and Arbesh, they can hide Easter eggs in the Star Wars universe using this language, and they totally do. And I'm going to totally tell you a couple of them. Now, this one's less funny. It's kind of cool, though. In Rogue One, Jin Erso wore a kyber crystal necklace that had an inscription that said, Trust in the Force, in Arbesh. A little bit more mundane, but still a cool way to build out the universe is uh, in The Force Awakens, Poe Dameron is wearing a like a life vest on his flight suit, and there is Arbesh written on it that says, Pull to inflate. <laughs> That's it. It's just saying what it does, which, you know, Sometimes you need that to build everything out. And my personal favorite, at Disney's Galaxy's Edge in the Walt Disney World Resort in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Oh, my gosh. Wait, 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 wait. There's a- Please tell me that the McDonald's coffee says, caution, contents are hot. No. Oh. They would have to put that in English. There's <laughs> no way. They're just not going to do that in English. But there is a bathroom stall that has a an Arbash inscription that says Mara Jade lives. And this is hinting at when Disney bought the Star Wars franchise, they famously like decanonized all of this stuff that they didn't think they could use. So like even though they owned all of the they call it the Star Wars Legends stuff, which is just like kind of like semi approved fan fiction, basically George Lucas was like, okay. It can't be within 25 years of the beginning of the story, and it can't be within 25 years of the end of the story. Otherwise, do what you want. Disney's like, no, 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 no. You can't do anything. We own all of this. But we're also going to say, like, the stuff that other people created isn't real. However, people who saw this inscription on a bathroom stall, like an official inscription, it's not graffitied by, like, a, a person... Uh, we're like, maybe they're going to bring Mara Jade back. So if they do, it was brought to you by a bathroom stall in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> so, As most of so the world's that. best things just, are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So now let's talk about two versions of le- fictional languages. The first is something called an art lang, or it is a language that is created for an artistic purpose, But it doesn't actually function as a language. You can't make Hamlet out of this language like you have, and they definitely have, out of Klingon. (laughs) There's Klingon Hamlet. Um, This is very different than, like, the Tolkien languages, which, you know, basically Tolkien created the Lord of the Rings because he wanted to make some languages. That's that's also been fairly well known, too. But we're going to talk about the language of Chewbacca himself called Shirwook. Basically, this consists of modulations of sound, 
by the throat. If you ever see Chewbacca talking, the mouth is open, the tongue is in a fixed position, and noise is being emitted. And this is not because of the technology of the masks in the 1970s and 80s. It is because this is how Wookiees create noise, obviously. Now, Wookiee anatomy creates a sound that is nearly impossible for humans to make. That's why you don't hear Han Solo just making weird throat noises like a like a Tuvan throat singer. Although maybe they could maybe maybe the people of the Tibetan plateau could actually communicate. And Wookiees can't make human noises. So there's like this disconnect and that's why you don't hear Wookiees just talking in galactic basic in anything. But they have their version of things. And like we said the languages of non-humans in the original trilogy were just kind of like, this sounds good. We're going to go with that. However, Chewbacca got so popular that uh, the person who created the sound, uh, created the language, Ben Burt, had to go back and be like, oh, no, we need to put a little bit of thought behind this because he's going to be a major character and has appeared in almost every movie within the Star Wars franchise. So they didn't really create a system of of uh, phonetics or anything because it really is just kind of like growling noises that are modulated on a synthesizer okay that's how i was gonna ask so someone growled and then they put it through a synthesizer so it is either a combination or the individual sounds of a walrus a grizzly bear and a pig <laughs> that they have run through a vocal order and modulated up and down uh, sometimes it is one of those animals, sometimes it's all three, sometimes it's two. It really just kind of fills in what they need it to do. But they have kind of created some very brief rules of if you need to pitch up and down at the end of a phrase to indicate whether it's a question or not. So there's there's stuff like that. There's no sheer wook glossary that you could go and try to learn this because it doesn't really work as that much of a language. And that's why they're calling it an art lang. So it's done for artistic purposes and not to be a language. Wait, does, has, someone made a, has someone made a voice modulator that makes anyone translate to a wiki, even though it's an artistic language? Yes. I feel- it was on Alan. There was the, the Wookiee mom. You don't remember the Wookiee mom of 20... 15, 14? I don't know what was happening back then. Oh, uh, you gotta Google. You gotta Google Wookie Mom or YouTube Wookie Mom or Bing Wookie Mom or whatever you know, whatever you're using. Okay. Um, Netscape Navigator Wookie Mom when nice. when you got free time. Well done. Well played. <laughs> <laughs> you could you could use Internet Explorer until recently, I think. So now you can't. Yeah, now it's Blaze or something. Yeah, something totally different now. Okay. Well, I catch up to seven years ago. Yeah. Well, you can- <laughs> but they did. They made a mask that when you open, so it goes under your chin. Yeah, it's a Chewbacca mask that goes under your chin. When you open your mouth, Chewbacca noises. Oh, come it's out. the best! It's the best because yeah. she laughs so hard at herself. <laughs> it's the greatest thing ever, especially because I think it's yeah. a, like a Christmas present for her kid, and she's like, "I'm so excited about it! I'm going to show you how oh it works God. right now." It's yeah. so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, we should have got Wookie Mom on for this. Oh, I'm sorry, for sure. guys. That was that Next was year. a downside. Yeah. What if it turns out she's like a mathematician or something too? That would be perfect. It'd be Gotta perfect. What if it turns out. out she listens to Science Night even better? Oh, if she does, hit me up. DMs are open. 
We'll figure something I'll give out. Give her a T-shirt. I mean, you're an engineer. You could probably figure out a way to make some kind of James mask that when she opens her mouth, I talk. Because that's what the world needs is more of my voice. <laughs> and you can get more of that well, voice at SciNight.com. Uh, well, you know where you can get less of my voice is by using sign language. And that's the last thing I'm going to talk about. So we talked about how the language of the Wookiees is not a language. It is just like a series of sounds with some basic rules. But the Tuscan sign language that you've seen in the two Disney Plus series, The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett, by the Tuscan Raiders or the Sand People, they got a, they kind of have a few names. This is a little bit different. And it's still being developed. It's actively being developed at this point. So basically, this is a functional uh, language created by Troy Kotzer for use in The Mandalorian and The Book of Boba Fett. And Troy is an Academy Award winning deaf actor. He just won an Academy Award for his role in CODA, which is an excellent film, and you should definitely see it. And he was cast to play a role of one of these Tuscan Raiders. And the one of the kind of like the script coordinators saw that they wanted to have a sign language for them. And so he was like, well, you know, we have this famous deaf actor. Uh, he's an activist for increasing awareness of the deaf community and, and increasing uh, roles for people, people like him. And he's like, you know, I'm going to I'm going to actually put some thought into this and not do what they asked him to do, which was just create an ASL version of of the sign language. So he read as much as he could find on the Tuscan Raiders or the Sand People, and he created a language that wasn't just an overlay, but it really was based on what he thought their hand signals and words would look like. It's a series of hand-signed letters and also uh, hand-signed hand words that are based on his reading of their culture. And then he also created a series of linguistic rules. So if they wanted to expand the language at any time, they had kind of the building box and the blocks and the foundation to do so. And this is what language constructors or conlanguers con like David J. Peterson, or even, you know, myself occasionally do, is they, they create these building blocks and then they put words on top of them, but with the aim of having the future be open to people to create and expand. And I think the fact that we're doing this in Star Wars with sign language is probably pretty important because there's a great story where Troy Kotzer is talking about how he loved Star Wars and the only way he could describe it was it made his eyes wet when he was a little kid. Because the things that he was seeing were so amazing. He couldn't hear it, but he could see it. And he wanted the he wanted deaf people to have a way to experience this. And I think that I thought that was really great. Yeah. No. So there's a huge Facebook community that is actually working on this language. And I, I, I'll throw, a, if I can get, if I can find a link to it, I'll throw the link on this website. Cause there's, you know, there's like the secondary construct language construction community that's kind of taken this and going with it. Um, I mean, Disney hasn't said whether they'll use like that version and anything going forward. I'm guessing they'll probably see if what they have in the script is there and then create words on top of it. Um, 
But I think it's cool that we have like this living sign language that is being created for a Star Wars thing. Because that's like, you know, the language, the constructed languages I always think of are spoken. We don't have like this this uh, sign language to go with, with it. So it's, it's a really cool thing. And kind of the end of my story of languages in Star Wars is pulling ourselves out of the Star Wars universe and talking about all the languages that Star Wars is dubbed in. So it is currently dubbed in 50 different languages. Most recently, it has been dubbed in Navajo. It is the first major motion picture to be dubbed in a Native American language, of which there are only 12 or 13. And a lot of them are actually Disney movies. The second was Finding Nemo, which was interesting. By Star Wars, I actually mean uh, Episode 4, A New Hope. This has been dubbed in so many different languages. And I think that's really cool that you can kind of bring people together that speak different things through Star Wars. So now that we've talked about languages and plasma and lightsabers and Death Stars, why don't we take a quick break so you can process all of this new information? And we will be back with Jason's conversation with friend of the show and all-around good guy, Dr. Bill Sullivan. Can you hear me? Do you smell the foul corruption? Things get a little strange here. And what about me? Like, really strange. Grotesque stench of rotten flesh. Yet consider this an invitation to our humble podcast. I'm only just starting. Just search, and we'll be waiting to greet you with a big hello. Come here. And welcome to Pulp from Beyond the Veil. What do you see? The island. Life. Death and decay. That feeds new life. Warmth. Cold. Peace. Violence. And between it all. Balance. And energy. A force. And inside you. Inside me. That same force. I'd like to welcome back to the podcast a friend of ours, Dr. Bill Sullivan, who is the Showalter Professor of Pharmacology and Toxicology at the Indiana University School of Medicine. He is author of Please to Meet Me, Genes, Germs, and the Curious Forces that Make Us Who We Are. Bill, thank you so much for coming back to talk to us about Star Wars-related science. It's my pleasure. One of my most favorite topics. Is that true? It is true. May the Force be with you. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, I brought you on here to talk about, as you noted, one of Star Wars fans' most loved and most loathed topics, and that is the topic of midichlorians. Tell us what midichlorians are, Bill. Sure. For those who aren't aware, the midichlorians were not introduced into the canon until the prequels came along. So up until that point, with the beloved trilogy most fans adore... The Force was kind of this mystical, spiritual, supernatural thing, phenomenon that bestowed certain abilities upon people 
who were able to cultivate this talent, if you will, this connection with the supernatural. It had very clear spiritual overtones associated with it. And I think a lot of fans enjoyed that mystique. But along came the prequels. And in the very first one, The Phantom Menace, midichlorians were introduced by Jedi Master Qui-Gon. I, I hope I'm saying that right. And um, he explained that midichlorians were basically microscopic creatures that inhabited people who were strong with the Force. So this is where it got a little polarizing because – it took away some of the magic and mystique from the force and tried to attach it to a tangible material entity, uh, this microscopic organism, which we know very little about. Uh, he didn't expand on how these microscopic creatures who were enriched in people who are strong with the force, how they got to be that way, why it runs in families. Apparently these microscopic critters are inherited somehow and what their connection is between moving things with your mind or doing the Jedi mind trick. You know, it's, it's hard to imagine how a microscopic entity could help someone carry out such phenomenal uh, skills. So let's set the stage. Um, the scene that you're referring to is a conversation between Anakin Skywalker and Qui-Gon Jinn. And Anakin says, Master, sir, I heard Yoda talking about midichlorians. I've been wondering, what are midichlorians? Midichlorians are a microscopic life form that resides within all living cells. They live inside me. Inside your cells, yes. And we are symbionts with them. Symbionts? Life forms living together for mutual advantage. Without the midichlorians... Life could not exist, and we would have no knowledge of the Force. They continually speak to us, telling us the will of the Force. When you learn to quiet your mind, you'll hear them speaking to you. So this is the first opportunity that we have to experience the Force as something other than just this mystical energy within the Force. This is a, a group of somethings living inside of us, or inside of folks in the Star Wars galaxy, that can commune with the Force. So, as a scientist, this clearly set your mind off along a path. What did it make you think of? Right. So, when I heard the word midichlorians, I didn't think it was just a name that he pulled out of thin air. So, if you break the word down, it looks a little bit like he could be referring to subcellular organelles uh, that reside in our cells in all uh, life on Earth, all the eukaryotes. Midi sounds a little like the mita in mitochondria, which are the so-called powerhouses of the cell. And chlorians remind me of chloroplasts, which are, again, another endosymbiont, but it gave rise to a photosynthesizing organelle that plants and algae carry in their cells in order to convert light into energy. So you use the term endosymbiont. What do you mean by that? Right. So en endosymbiont would be referring to a structure, we call it an organelle, that is inside of a cell. And it was acquired through basically gobbling up material. So a long, long time ago in Earth's history, it was pretty much a cellular world. There were bubbles of materials that were considered cells, and they would gobble up things from the soup around them. 
in order to grow and eventually divide. And sometimes they'd gobble up each other or gobble up pieces of one another. And if those pieces that they gobbled up, instead of getting digested and broken down for parts, somehow resisted that process and contributed something that benefited the cell that ate it, okay, then a symbiotic relationship could emerge because the host cell, as we call it, the cell that ate the material might benefit from something that the organelle generates, maybe a nutrient or energy or something like that. And the organelle gets protected by that cell. It has this nice new shelter, a new home that it can live in and in some cases uh, grow and divide. So that's a nice trade-off and it could be beneficial for both parties. Thus, we have a symbiotic relationship. And uh, that is exactly where it is believed that the mitochondria and chloroplast, these organelles that persist in some eukaryotic cells, uh, that's where they came from long, long time ago. They used to be free living, but can't live on their own any longer. And it's come to a point where the host cell can't live without them either. So it's, it's gone beyond symbiosis and kind of become a necessity at this point. So you mentioned eukaryotic cells. That's in contrast with prokaryotic cells. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of what the differences in those types of cells are? Sure. Sorry if I'm throwing out some jargon here that might not be familiar, but prokaryotic cells are older and they're your typical bacteria cells. When most people think of prokaryotes, you're thinking about bacteria. And the main difference is they don't have a nucleus that surrounds the DNA within their cell. They also don't have these endosymbiotic organisms. So the mitochondria, for example, which eukaryotic cells have, that's one of the trademark features of a eukaryotic cell, in addition to a nuclear envelope that surrounds the genetic material, these mitochondria are believed to have come from an ancient bacteria called alpha proteobacterium, something like that. I think in modern terms, they evolved to become the rickettsia, which actually contains some pathogens. But way back in the day, these alpha proteobacterium uh, found their way into a larger cell and gradually became what we know of today as mitochondria. And is that true also of chloroplasts? Were they also like a prokaryotic cell that ended up enveloped within a eukaryotic cell that then maintained a, a symbiotic relationship? That's right. And it would have been a photosynthetic bacterium in that instance. That's cool. That's something I never actually thought about before. And that's kind of really heady to think about um, that, you know, these eukaryotic cells are sort of bringing or ingesting these prokaryotic cells, and that's how we get changes in the uh, evolutionary history of animals or of beings on this planet. It's, fan it's fascinating to me. It, it is fascinating. When you look at every single animal on the planet, it goes back to that first eukaryotic creature that enveloped that bacterium that became a mitochondria. And likewise for all plants, that photosynthetic bacterium that eventually became the chloroplast that's in every plant that you see out there. So yeah, it's, it's really kind of humbling and a little, you know, mystical in and of itself to wonder about all the life on this planet, whether it be animal or plant, takes its origin way back to 3.5, 4 billion years ago when these events happened. So we talked about symbiosis now, and that's really the fundamental story here about midichlorians is that in episode one 
uh, we get this explanation now that the force is not driven just by energy, but it's actually driven by symbiotic parts of our cells or, you know, midichlorians that are or at least parts of cells of those living in the Star Wars galaxy that can then interact with the force. Tell us a little bit more about sort of the, the symbiotic nature of midichlorians here and, and sort of what that does to the Star Wars story. Well, I think it, it rubs some people the wrong way because up until they were their introduction in episode one, it almost sounded like anybody could go to Dagobah and talk to Yoda and get trained to be a Jedi if they were young and not too impatient and behaved well. <laughs> you know, there's no, no sign they would be mm-hmm. turning to the dark side or whatever. And um, that doesn't appear to be the case because apparently people are born with these midichlorians in their cells. Qui-Gon says they're in everyone. But if you watch other episodes of Star Wars, there's instances where they actually measure the level of midichlorians in individuals. And some people have higher levels than others, implying that they are predisposed to be more in commune with the Force, okay, to be able to tap into its powers. And that means only a select number of people through no choice of their own because midichlorians don't appear to be something that you can inject into yourself. They're in your cells already and you apparently are born with a certain number of them. And as we know from the, from the series, the force runs in families, right? So um, they must be a heritable entity and that's also kind of restrictive. So I, I think that was part of the controversy in that, you know, we're talking about um, a subset of people here are kind of like privileged and predisposed to be able to commune with the force. Not just everybody can do it. And this is kind of where the story of mitochondria kind of breaks down here, right? The parallel with midichlorians because mitochondria are passed down from mother, right? The mother's side, especially. Strictly Uh, the mother's side, yeah. So it is a matrilineal descent. There's a history that we can trace and that would keep things familial, but everybody gets mitochondria and you don't get a different number of mitochondria based on, to my understanding, based on sort of your genetic predisposition to increased mitochondria, right? So you don't have this same kind of story where you could have more mitochondria and therefore, you know, be able to commune with the force or whatever it may be in a different way than someone else, right? This is where that breaks down. And and Yuri Geller and Sylvia Brown aside, um, you know, there's no way that mitochondria bestow powers upon us uh, that are akin to the force. Unless we're talking about ancestry. In which case, mitochondria do, do bestow powers on us, and that's the ability to trace a matrilineal line through time. Well, that, yeah, that's a pretty cool indirect ability. Yeah, sure. Yeah, but it takes a lot more than just mitochondria to be able to make that happen. Whereas midichlorians, the, you know, the number of midichlorians you have might actually make you commune with the Force much better. Okay, so as a cell biologist and as a Star Wars fan, how does this make you feel? I have to admit I'm a little torn on it because I always like trying to attach something ephemeral like the force. I always like to try to understand it in a rational way. And midichlorians are kind of a baby step to that process and starts to explain how some people can move things around with their mind or, you know, appear somewhere where they're not, things like that. And and that's where the film still leaves a big black box. You know, we, we really don't understand how these so-called midi-chlorians help someone to do those sorts of things. 
there's a small part of me, I guess you would say the scientist part, that appreciates the intention here to attach some sort of biological rationale to these superpowers, if you will. But there's also, you know, as a Star Wars fan, it leaves me a little empty because there's no indication how these midichlorians are involved in dark versus light side of the force and what governs how someone's, I guess, intention to be good or evil. How does that work with these midichlorians and either make them stronger or weaker in the context of the force? Those sorts of questions are left unanswered. And, and, and I guess that's just fine. You know, you don't want to overthink these films too much, but that's where I'm, that's where I'm torn on it. You know, I, I can appreciate the intention, but I also understand the frustration that many fans feel when you try to go and attach biology to something that they just want to get lost in the mystery of. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And frankly, I've always had this sort of opinion that folks like Darth Vader, for example, Anakin Skywalker, they didn't set out to become part of the dark side. They made a series of choices, and those choices led them down a path. But each one of those choices in isolation, they were making with the best available information they had at the time, and there was an intention behind it. I mean, every choice that Anakin Skywalker made was really about trying to protect his family. It just happened to lead him further and further down a path where it was undeniable he was not on the light side any longer. Right, right. So now you're leaving the realm of midichlorians and moving into kin selection. Uh, <laughs> kin selection gone way bad. <laughs> correct, correct. You know, kin selection in overdrive. And uh, yeah, that, that can obviously have disastrous consequences, not only for one's family, but apparently for an entire galaxy. That's right, that's right. So uh, kin selection being that you're making decisions or this is at a species level, tied to the species desire to make sure that their kin are provided for, as opposed to just putting a whole bunch of kin out there, right? And saying, okay, let it happen. Hopefully I have enough offspring out there that some of my genetic material will get into the next generation and then the generation after that. In this particular case, if you're talking about a kin selected species, we're talking about a species that's going to put a lot of effort into raising their young to make sure that their genetic material gets into the next generation like humans for example we are kin selected whereas uh locusts for example are they're what are called r selected right um reproduction selective um and so they are focusing on just reproducing as much as possible to get as many of their offspring out there and just sort of flood the environment and hope that some of their offspring don't get eaten right and apparently midichlorians too because i guess back in the star wars dating game if you're strong with the force, you might want to mate with someone else who's strong with the force to ensure that your kids pick up enough midichlorians to also be strong with the force. They don't really get into that sort of element to it in the films, probably for the better, uh, because it's kind of getting into the weeds of biology. But, you know, there's elements to our own species, such as the microbiota, you know, these microbes that live on and inside of us that apparently can be passed uh, from mother to child. So why can't the midichlorians be inherited uh, in that fashion as well? So yeah, it raises some interesting questions. All of that sort of presupposes that you need to have two parents who have high levels of midichlorians, right? None of this speaks to the possibility that having a high number of midichlorians in your cells is a dominant trait 
that you would only need one copy of a gene for, right? And so um, there's also that, that potential avenue to think about, right? If we want to go down this rabbit hole as far as we can. <laughs> yeah, you can go really far down the rabbit hole because you can say that no matter how many midichlorians someone has, there is a genetic mutation that offsets their ability or enhances it in some way because there's always an interplay with your environment and your genetics as well. And one of the things that they didn't touch on that, you know, Star Wars, the prequels go into all this cloning business, mm-hmm. but there's no speculation. No one appears to have ever conceived the idea that they could just inject someone with midichlorians in an analogous way that we either do gene therapy or um, fecal transplantation or something of that nature. You know, the, the purposeful delivery of microbes or genes into someone to achieve a certain medicinal effect. Why not do that with midichlorians? You know, if, if you now have a tangible way to enhance someone's ability to tap into the force, then why not just load them up with midichlorians? That's a great question. George Lucas needs to answer that one. <laughs> Again, I want to say thank you so much, uh, Bill, for coming on to the podcast today. I am so glad we got to go down this rabbit hole together, and I'm even more grateful that there was not a sarlacc at the bottom of that pit. Thankfully, we're getting out alive today. Um, again, thank you for coming on the podcast. Our guest today has been Bill Sullivan, professor of uh, pharmacology and toxicology at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Jason. Thank you very much, Bill. If this was a regular episode, we'd just leave and be like, hey, we'll be back in a week. But this is Star Wars Day. The Force is with us. And also is Dr. Jason Organ, who's going to talk about our favorite feline, canine. I don't know. We'll talk about it in a minute. Let's talk about Wookiees. Let's do it, James. Let's pick up on a thread you were talking about before, which is uh, about... Vocal anatomy in Wookiees, which, if it's human-like, is very different than it is if it is more dog-like. And so Chewbacca is known to have been modeled after George Lucas's dog. Aww. Was his dog named Indiana? Whose name was Indiana, in fact. We're named the dog Indiana. Maybe go home now, please. The dog? <laughs> you are named after the dog? <laughs> Got a lot of fond memories of that dog. No! Yes. So, um, <laughs> and the reason Chewbacca was modeled after after Indiana the dog was because Indiana used to ride in the front seat of George Lucas's car as his co-pilot. Oh, that's cute. And so Chewbacca became the prototypical co-pilot, right? And really, the story behind what I want to talk to you about started when I walked out of my office one day, and there was a food truck parked outside the office called Der Pretzel Wagon. And it's it's an awesome food truck here in Indianapolis. I hope they're listening. Um, if they are, I hope you come around the office again sometime soon. It's been a while. Um, they sell... Or you could just send us all food. Yeah, I would love send food. Send us all food. Right, yeah, right. Please. DMs are open. I believe that was an and. And you can send us all food. Yes. <gasps> yes, and. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the thing that I love about their Pretzel Wagon is that they serve like all these different sandwiches made on pretzel buns. Or you could just buy regular old pretzels. Ooh. They're delicious. But in particular, so they, love to, they love to theme their sandwiches after Star Wars characters. There's a sandwich that they sell called the Ham Solo, for example. 
The one that I always really enjoyed is called the Chewbacca. It's not spelled exactly the same way, um, but it's close enough. And it's basically a roast beef sandwich with like melted cheddar cheese on it and Funyuns. It's so good. It is so good. And so I was sitting there eating my Chewbacca sandwich. And as a nerd does, I thought, I wonder how Chewbacca would eat this sandwich. Because if Chewbacca is, a, is more primate-like, Chewbacca would have eaten it in one way. And if Chewbacca is more dog-like, Chewbacca would have eaten a sandwich in a different way. And to me, that had a lot of physiological implications, some of which revolve around language, but some of which just revolve around basic swallowing anatomy and how that might be different because of the way that, uh, that primates and dogs um, grow their necks, as it turns out. And so I started thinking about this a little bit, right? And the way that we do this in evolutionary biology is to think about common ancestry. So when we talk about a phylogenetic tree, we're talking about sort of the relationship of species to one another. And you can look at a phylogenetic tree, um, also called a cladogram. And you can see that um, when you have two species or two groups of species that are closely related, like, for example, crocodiles on the one hand and dinosaurs and birds on the other. And we actually talked about this with Casey Holiday not too long ago, past episode. The thing sort of that, that unites all of them, those two groups, is a particular... Um, structure on the skull ca called post-orbital fenestra. There are actually two of them. So all crocodiles uh, and all dinosaurs or birds share that trait. And if you look sort of at another group of closely related species, like, for example, primates and rodents and rabbits, just other mammals, one of the things that unites all of them is hair. And then if you look at a little moving back even further, one of the things that unites primates and rodents and rabbits on the one hand and then crocodiles dinosaurs and birds on the other hand even though they have their own separate traits that unite them is that all of those groups share the common trait of an amniotic egg so that actually answers definitively right here on science night that the egg did in fact come before the chicken and not <laughs> the chicken before the egg if you look at it phylogenetically but if you step back, this is how you can sort of determine um, what traits might have been independently evolved or what traits might be shared with earlier ancestry. I kind of wanted to take a, th a thought exercise through the evolutionary history of Wookiees to think about what that might mean. Like I said before, if Wookiees are more dog-like, they're going to have neck anatomy that looks in one particular way, which is going to have implications for the way that they would swallow their food. And that would be different than if they were more closely aligned with primates. Most of the time, though, when people think about evolution, they're thinking about it in terms of sort of the way that you'd see it like in Pokemon, for example, where Pichu mm -hmm. directly evolves into Pikachu, who then directly evolves into Raichu, Right. Like, that doesn't happen. We're talking... That's very rare to happen in the evolutionary biology um, sort of evolutionary record, right? Why would you want to evolve past Pikachu anyway? You got so a better cute. special attack. You got better speed. Like, what are we doing here? No, it's a, good, it's a really good point. It's a good point. But even so, you're not going to get there in a linear manner, right? <laughs> you're going to get there by splitting events. We call that speciation. Well, that's not what Jean-Baptiste Lamarck told me. Right. And that's why Jean-Baptiste Lamarck is probably not known to most of our audience, whereas Darwin mm. and Wallace sure. are. That 
that guy. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you want to learn more about <laughs> Wallace, you can actually turn into tune into one of our very first episodes where James uh, gives oh, us the story definitely of Alfred Wallace. It's actually a really cool story. And he's a forgotten yeah, he's a I forgotten a legend here. You did do a good job, James. Pat on the back. Oh, you can even go to you can hear the whole story in History's B-Sides. Excellent. So I thought, you know what, I need to look here and and think about sort of whether or not Wookiees are more closely related to dogs or whether they are more closely related to primates and that will give me a better understanding of how Chewbacca might have eaten a sandwich which now I've let you in on a little bit about how I think and what I think about and I apologize to all of you now I really want a sandwich now oh yeah. you know what I really with do funions. too and I'm not even that hungry but it is a good sandwich with Funyuns on it you really can't go wrong with Funyuns sounds so good so if you look at the two different orders we're talking about here, we're talking about the order primates or primates. That's what we belong to, so humans. And we're talking about another order here, carnivora. And that's the order uh, that includes dog-like animals, cat-like animals, bears, um, all sorts of different things, uh, weasels, uh, raccoons, just to name a few. So it, it covers a whole bunch of of species, more than just species, families, in fact. Uh, it probably is worth taking a second here to say that when we talk about carnivores, we're not usually talking about whether or not an animal eats meat. Now, that's the term that's used for that. You're a carnivore, you're an omnivore, you're an herbivore, right? You either eat meat, you eat everything, or you eat plants. We're talking about carnivorans here, so members of the order carnivora. And everyone in the order Carnivora is actually united by a very specialized type of molar called a carnassial molar. And it's got shearing blades on it so that it's meant for slicing through meat. And it can help crush bone as well. But it's really meant as a slicing tooth. So you can probably assume then that most carnivores or carnivorans are eating things that um, require slicing like meat. Are there, are there herbivores in Carnivora? There are some car, uh, carnivorans that uh, have predominantly fruit diets. So a good example of that is the procyonid, which is a raccoon relative called a kinkajou. Kinkajous are not primates, despite the fact that Paris Hilton has a monkey that she, that, or she has a kinkajou that she, call, she calls her monkey, her pet monkey. But, um, but they are, in fact, nocturnal raccoon relatives with a prehensile tail that eat primarily mangoes. Um, and they're actually really cool because when you shine a flashlight into their eyes at night, their eyes reflect green light back at you. So they have green eye shine. They're unmistakable in the forest canopy at night. They're really, really cool. So, yes, to answer your question, there are some that don't eat much meat. Kinkajous are one of them. I thought it might be good to talk about sort of what are some of the characteristics of dogs, what are some of the characteristics of primates, and then where do Wookiees fall? So let's talk very briefly about the characteristics of dogs. So characteristics of dogs include all of the characteristics that unite all of carnivorans. So all of the order carnivora. And that includes things like skull bones that are fused in specific places. And that has to do with the kind of shearing stresses that are put on their skulls while they're chewing. And so bones fuse in particular places to keep their skulls more rigid and so forth. So dogs have, you know really fused skulls in very specific places. They have a really developed sense of smell. Anyone who has a dog knows this, right? I'm sure Danger Boat has a fantastic sense of smell, right, Steph? He does, and he bites. Yeah, so right there you go. And he's got a carnassial. You should uh, take a look at it. Yeah. Anyway, and here's something that's important about dogs. They have non-retractable claws. Anyone who has a dog knows that they're going to scratch up the floor 
because those claws are out all the time. When they get excited and they run, that's just what dogs do. They don't have retractable claws, and so they really can't control that. So what about characteristics of primates? Well, primates uh, tend to have large brains relative to their body size. They have forward-facing eyes with overlapping visual fields. We call this stereoscopic vision. And the evolution of stereoscopic vision is thought to have been something that happened as a trade-off with a reduced sense of smell. So in order to evolve a really well-developed sense of vision, which all primates have, including humans, um, we had to reduce our sense of smell. Well, clearly dogs don't have that issue, right? They have a very well-developed sense of smell. And in fact, their sense of vision is different and maybe not as well-developed as ours when it comes to three-dimensional relationships. And then finally, a really important characteristic of primates is that we all, all primates have nails instead of claws on all or most of their digits. So, you know, we all have fingernails. All primates have fingernails on most of their digits. Uh, Some do have a claw for grooming purposes or for feeding purposes, but that's a hallmark of primate evolution, loss of, of claws altogether. So then where does that place Wookiees? I did check the very important literature, Wikipedia. And also Animal Planet's Animal Icon series, because this is where all of the most important information comes from. And um, there are several characteristics of Wookiees that are more primate-like and some that are more dog-like. So uh, let's talk about those. The more primate-like characteristics are things like human-like bipedal locomotion. Wookiees walk around on two limbs. They make their way through the forest just like we do just like Sasquatch does, just like Yeti does. Sasquatch. All right. James is a big fan of the cryptids. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that is a very primate-like characteristic, not very dog-like. Wookiees also have forward-facing eyes with overlapping visual fields, so they do, in fact, have stereoscopic vision. And they have very large brains relative to body size, so they have presumably high intelligence. I mean, we're told that they have high intelligence, We also know that they can speak a number of languages that do not require, as you mentioned before, James, vocal nuance. They can't speak galactic basic standards, so they don't have human-like speech, but that's because of their anatomy, as you alluded to. We'll kind of talk about that in a second. They have opposable thumbs. That's not actually a primate characteristic, but there are most primates have opposable thumbs. Um, In fact, you know, you often hear, oh, well, it's opposable thumbs that set us apart. Actually, it's not. Raccoons have opposable thumbs, and that's why you always have to lock down the lid of your garbage can. Right, But a raccoon is not a human, it's not a primate, and so opposable thumbs is not a hallmark of our species or our order. So, what about dog-like characteristics? Well, Wookiees have both a highly developed sense of vision, which dogs don't have, and a very keen sense of smell. So it's really the best of all worlds. So they can smell really well, and they can see really well. Which means it's not a trade-off in terms of Wookiee anatomy between vision and, and smell. But that's really the only dog-like characteristic that Wookiees have, other than their fur. But again, we mentioned that that is going to unite all of mammals, so it's really not anything special. There are some Wookiee characteristics, however, that are uniquely Wookiee. For example, they have a disproportionately high strength for their body size. <laughs> He made a fair move. Screaming about it can't help you. Don't have it. It's not wise to upset a Wookiee. But, sir, nobody worries about upsetting a droid. It's because a droid don't pull people's arms out of their sockets when they lose. 
rookies are known to do that. I see your point, sir. I suggest a new strategy, Artu. Let the Wookiee win. A Wookiee can rip your arms off. Now, it's true that large primates can also do the same. In fact, uh, I a long time ago, I was sitting at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History collecting some data on some skeletons of chimpanzees, and I was talking to the curator of the biological anthropology collections there at the time. He's now actually the direct, executive director of the museum. His name is Dr. Bruce Latimer. And he was telling me a story about this orangutan at the Cleveland Zoo that was in an old enclosure that hadn't been updated. And it was basically one of these big cinder block enclosures with a little, um, I wouldn't call it an escape hatch, but a way out to the outside of the exhibit through the roof, through the ceiling. But this was a really obese orangutan. There was no way he was going to be getting out on a regular basis. But Bruce watched him with his foot, with his finger, put his finger up on top of this, um, this sort of hole in the roof and pull himself up with one finger to look through his head and see what was going on and then lower himself back down. That's insane. It's, it's amazing, right? And so there wow. are primates that do have high strength or body size, but not in the way that, that Wookiees supposedly do. I also know that feeling too. It's like you can like, oh, I could pull myself out and go go out about town. Like, ugh, why bother? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been there. So the last point I want to make here is that Wookies have retractable claws. So it's not dog-like. It's not human-like because humans don't have claws. Primates have nails instead of claws. And what is that then? It's more cat-like, which I guess isn't surprising considering that if we're talking about the order carnivora, cats and dogs are closely related to the exclusion of primates. But that is decidedly a very cat-like feature, not a human-like or primate-like, and not a dog-like feature. So all of this leads me to believe that Wookiees share more traits with primates than they do with dogs. And that's important because that can take us back to how would Chewbacca have eaten a Chewbacca sandwich. So one of the things I want you to think about for a second here is the last time you tried to breathe and swallow at the same time. How did that go for you, James? I just choked. <coughs> yeah. I just did right. it right now. I choked. <laughs> nice. You were like really just channeling your inner 76er. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Choked real hard. Yep. It's because you actually have a larynx that is descended in your neck relative to the rest of your your neck, right? So rest, relative to what we call your pharynx, which is the, the air chamber, right? Uh, that then becomes part of the food chamber. So what happens is you've got this pharynx that's connected to your nose and your nose is going to need to drain to the front part of your neck through your trachea. That's where your larynx is, right? Just above your trachea. But your food pathway actually goes behind where your trachea is into your esophagus. And so it really is like crossing the streams. And if there's one thing that we learned from Ghostbusters is that bad Don't things happen it. when you cross Don't the streams, it. right? That's yeah, true. Yeah. It's trotonic reversal. That's right. So because adult humans have this descended larynx in their neck, it actually poses a problem for us to be able to swallow and breathe at the same time, which means we aspirate our food a lot, right? Especially here in Indiana where we probably aspirate French fries or Big Macs into our right main bronchus right there into our lungs, right? That's just what we do as a group because that's what we eat as a group. Wait, is that a common problem in Indiana? No, I think it's just a common problem for people oh. who eat fast food, which <laughs> is 
<laughs> a common problem in Indiana. God. Right? I mean, this state is I known. I going to be like, yeah, French fries have a 5% mortality rate in the state ah. of Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. This is a state that loves its fried pork tenderloin sandwiches. So I've never had one, but I hear they're really good. But here's the thing. Descending our larynx into our neck like that allows us to speak like we are doing right now. It allows us to have a controlled, open system of communication where we can actually make human-like vocal nuances. We could actually speak in languages that Wookiees can't. For example, Galactic Basic Standard. Um, because we can make these vocalizations that, that Wookiees can't. But it doesn't mean that Wookiees aren't more human-like. Because when we're born, we actually are born with our larynx really high up in our neck. In fact, part of our larynx, the epiglottis, which is this piece of cartilage that covers over our airways so that when we do swallow, we tend not to aspirate our food into our, into our lungs. Right? It kind of flips over and keeps us from choking, or at least that's what it's supposed to do. When we're born, when we're a baby, when we're newly born, our epiglottis is basically stuck up into our nasopharynx, which means that it is locked against our soft palate meaning that our, our airways don't cross, which is why babies can suckle and swallow at the same time. They can, they can breathe and swallow at the same time. They don't speak, obviously, wow. so they don't need to have yeah. their larynx descended as far. Yeah. Um, and it's not going to happen they until they do. They sound a lot like Chewbacca. They do. They do sound a lot like Chewbacca, too. Especially at like 3 a.m. Right. Oh, no. <laughs> so all of this is to say that I think that Chewbacca would have eaten his sandwich probably more like a human does. But then if he was anything like me, he probably would have eaten his sandwich like a pig does. Because that's what I do. Just I chow that thing down. As it is. So again, you really can't go wrong with Funyuns. I, yeah, I was going to say, if it's that sandwich, go for it. Anyway, that was what I was thinking about with regard to Wookiees. Um, you know, it's certainly not as insightful as plasma laser swords or conlangs, but, uh, you know, it's still my contribution. It's con, what do we call it? Like con anat, con anatomy, a con, a constructed anatomy I mean, maybe, is like a con anat. Or maybe it just everyone who listened to it was now conned into thinking I knew I, what I was talking about. Uh, yeah, you totally do. <laughs> You have a whole doctorate in sandwich eating. I, that is 100% <laughs> true. <laughs> I share that doctorate. <laughs> Gladly. <laughs> uh, that's, that's what I got Man, every time I hear you talk about, I like pose these hypotheticals based on sandwich-related things. Because, uh, dear listener, it happens way more than you're expecting. <laughs> um, Although not way more than James expects. Well, this is, yeah, I know. This is going to be like the rest of my night now is thinking, how would this thing eat a sandwich? Um, I got to go we don't, eat we my never... sandwich now. I, yeah, the Funyuns are calling yeah. you. We never ask the, we never ask like the anthro question of, would they eat a sandwich? Or how do they feel after they've eaten the sandwich? Well, I feel like that is the perfect all this under bookend to this science communication piece that we're bringing you. So... I want to thank our good friend Bill Sullivan for talking to us. Go out and buy Please to Meet Me. We'll put links in this website so that you can click on it and purchase it. And you've come to the end 
of our Star Wars celebration, the 2022 version. But we're going to be coming back with all kinds of cool stuff this May. We got a regular episode coming to you in one week, so stay tuned for that. But until then, if you want to go ahead and follow me, I'm not doing anything interesting on Twitter other than complaining lately, but you can see what my rants are at James underscore read three. Steffi, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at Steffi Deem or Instagram at Starshippin. And Jason, where can everybody find you? You can find me on Twitter at OregonJM. And you can follow the Science Night podcast on Twitter at Science Night and the number one. Or you can go to our home on the web, Cyanite.com, where you can find past episodes. You can find links to all the stories we talk about. And most importantly, you can find ways to support the podcast by buying merchandise at Cyanite.com slash merch or just follow the link on the home screen bookmark that we're getting new stuff coming up soon just click the reload button constantly until that happens buy and buy a sci- uh, science night mouse to replace your old one when that breaks all of that can be found at cyanite.com we will be back in one week with a new episode and until then may the force be with you podcast is a proud member of the river power podcast mill to find out more about our shows go to riverpower.xyz see that's a fun that's a fun thing i did there at the end of star wars home yes. home on the web